You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Morning, it's great to be with you this morning. As you've seen, this morning we're looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. But to fill us in on where we're up to in uh, John's Gospel, it might be helpful just have a quick recap on what's been happening in, in the first two chapters. In chapter 1, we see that brilliant prologue uh, from John, going through that Christ is the Word, the living Word of God, that He is full of grace and truth, that He is the eternal God come in the flesh. And then we see the testimony of John the Baptist and the calling of the first disciples. But then in chapter 2, we have this marvelous miracle of Jesus at a wedding. Jesus' first public sign, think a road sign pointing to who his identity is. We see him turning water into wine, bringing joy to where there was to be shame, bringing joy to where there was to be sadness. And at this event, at this wedding, what Jesus is doing here is ushering in the messianic age. He's announcing it is here. The kingdom of God you've all been waiting for, it is here. And then he goes on into Jerusalem and says that this temple here don't need it anymore. I'm the new temple. I am the new temple of God. What we're left though at the end of that chapter is two questions. Firstly, how do you enter the kingdom of God? And secondly, who enters the kingdom of God? That's what we see in chapters three and four, the how and the who. And we're looking at the how today. Before we carry on, let me pray for us as we look at God's word together. Let's pray. Our great God, and by your grace towards us, our Father, we thank you for your word that you have written here for us. As you look at it, may you incline our hearts towards it, and not to anything else, not to any distractions we have this morning. May you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your words. May you unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about being the President of the United States of America. I know sometimes I have you watch films and you see all the great things they could do. Think of the great policies that you could bring into that country, the good things you could do there. It's almost the ultimate boys and their toys job. Think of all the cool gadgets you could have. Think of all the places you could stay for free. Think of all the good foods you could eat whenever you wanted to. Doesn't sound too bad, to be honest. But I'll never be president of America for various reasons. But one of them stands above them all. I wasn't born in America. There is simply no possible way that I could run for the presidency there. It's, it's impossible. I cannot change myself. I cannot make myself an American to have that job. There's no way that can happen. Except hypothetically, hypothetically, of course, if I was to somehow be reborn into that country, somehow physically born again in America, becoming a full-blooded American. That, of course, is, is far-fetched and a bit ridiculous. What we're going to see in John 3 is something quite similar, but actually something far more remarkable. 
Here in front of us in this chapter, we have an intimate Q&A session between two teachers in Israel at the time. First teacher, Nicodemus, a great learned man, the teacher of Israel, the theological authority there. He's a man of pedigree, an elite member in their society. The second teacher, a man named Jesus, unschooled, here politely called a rabbi by Nicodemus, but he doesn't have to. He's just a carpenter from some backwater parts of the Roman Empire, but someone whose teaching has been causing a stir in that country and discussing what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Let's now listen into this conversation where they discuss how one enters the kingdom. If you've got a Bible in front of me, please turn to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. If you're using the church Bibles, that's page 1065. This is John chapter 3, 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the, miracle, the, mir- the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Look down at uh, verse 1 where we meet Nicodemus. We'll look at our first point here, the necessity of a new birth. Notice here, Nicodemus has heard of Jesus. He's, he's heard of the signs. He might have seen them that Jesus has been doing, and he comes to meet him. Notice he's coming at nighttime. In one sense, nighttime is evening, a time of no crowds, a time where people won't see this interaction happening. But I think John's got another meaning here behind the word night. For Nicodemus comes in night because he's a person of the night. Night and Darkness in John's gospel linked to the world in its fallen state, in its rebellion of God. 
And look at verse 2, though, and see how polite Nicodemus is. See how friendly he is with Jesus. This man from the top of society coming to this, to this somewhat nobody. But look how blunt Jesus is with him in response in verse 3. No pleasantries, no punches pulled. I think we're right to be quite shocked by this interaction. But Jesus isn't rejecting Nicodemus' method of, of his conclusion. Brother, he's... he's rather well, criticizing him of how he's got to it. He's almost there. He recognizes that Jesus is from God. But he's missing the obvious point that, in fact, he is God. So yes, the human observation and reasoning are really important when we're investigating Jesus. We need to remember that they aren't everything, though. The Christian faith is not less than rational. That is true, and we often forget that. So it's not less than rational. There is more to it than that. Look at verse 3. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this is the central issue in the passage here. Nicodemus has been doing his homework. He sees there's something about Jesus. He's almost there, but he needs to be born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. When we hear these these Christianese words, we like to use born again and kingdom of God. I'm sure all sorts of things pop into our heads. And I hope today that if, if they're wrong, they'll be corrected. And if they're right, they'll be, they'll be reinforced. But what Nicodemus, though, what's going through his head when he hears these words? What's going through his head when he hears kingdom of God? Well, to him, it would mean that kingdom of God would mean to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age, to experience eternal resurrection life presided over by King David's son. This would have been his hope from a young boy growing up and hope of many Jewish people now today. And Nicodemus probably thought he was right on track for achieving this. He's a Jew, he's, he's a ruler of the Jews, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's a religious elite. If he were to leave school now, he'd have won the award for most likely to gain entry into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is sorted in this. He's right on track for entering it. So he thinks, but Jesus says no. All that Nicodemus does not matter one bit. Your reputation, your, your pedigree, your religiosity does not matter, Nicodemus. Because only by being born again can you see the kingdom of God. And a new birth will see is only possible by the Holy Spirit. And I love Nicodemus here. He doesn't get angry that this man Jesus is telling him that he's wrong. He doesn't go on the defensive. He's just like, what are you on about, Jesus? Enter back into your mother's womb to be born again. What, what do you mean by this? He doesn't walk away. I sometimes wonder if I would have walked away if I was Jesus and I hear these things. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't dismiss him. But he's drawn to him. He knows there's something about him. And said he stays and he listens to what Jesus means by this. See, Nicodemus really is the best man ever could offer in our religiosity. He is the best chance any man would ever have in getting into the kingdom of God. What a blow this must have been to him. And what a shattering of our pride this is also as we read this. That we are completely powerless, completely helpless, completely unable, completely incapable of entering the kingdom of God on our own. He doesn't 
matter how privileged our upbringing was or is. It doesn't matter on your social standing. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what your gender is or your sexuality. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how others view you or how refined you might be. It doesn't matter how likable you are or lovable you might be. It doesn't matter if this is your first time in church or your 5,000th time in church. If you are not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And well, that levels the playing field for us all, doesn't it? No one can enter, not even Nicodemus. And when we look around there, there's no person in this room who deserves any more to be in the kingdom of God no one deserves to be in it. We are so warped in ourselves, so twisted, so broken by our rebellion against God that Jesus says we need to be entirely reborn. We need a whole new birth, not a refit or an upgrade. This is the most radical new start you could ever think of and that there ever could be. It's the only reason why anyone here or anywhere is in the kingdom of God is a work by God's grace towards us. Because new life is only possible by the Holy Spirit. And this term, uh, born again, we've written here, personally don't find it that helpful. It can bring up all sorts of connotations in our mind. And being born again is more what Nicodemus is thinking here. But really he's missing the point. Jesus is talking about a new birth. A birth born from above, a spiritual birth. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 5 and 6. He's helping Nicodemus understand what he means by this new birth. That's possible by water and spirits. And I don't think it's two births going on here, but, or two baptisms. Because Jesus is talking about a new birth singular. But this language going on here, Nicodemus should really have picked up on this. He should have been listening to this and going, I recognize this. Where have I heard this before? I've heard this somewhere. See, in Ezekiel 36, we see the Jewish people separated uh, from the temple. They're off in exile and God is, in this passage, reminding them of their sin. But let me read in verses 25 to 27. These amazing verses that for the sake of his name, there will be a time where God will sprinkle clean water on them to cleanse them and put his spirit in them, giving them a new desire to obey him. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, that time is now. That time is here. What we need is a spiritual new birth. Our flesh can do nothing, Nicodemus. You see, flesh just gives birth gives birth to flesh. We need external help to help us. And I think we know that though when we try to improve ourselves. Nothing really lasts too long. Or when it does, we, we start going quite well and then we can get quite proud about it. We think, yeah, I'm doing quite well here. So-and-so is not doing too well. Or we can start trying to improve ourselves and actually we're not doing too well. We stumble again. We slip over at the same sin. We look at uh, our mate and go, they're doing far better than I am. Because we don't do it on our own, probably we don't do it at all. It is a work entirely by God, by the Holy Spirit. We need his external help. So our salvation is nothing down to you, but it is entirely down to God. And Nicodemus should have, should have known this. This shouldn't be new to him or to any other Jew. It's right there in Ezekiel 36. And then Jesus goes on to illustrate his point to him with an analogy of the wind and the Holy Spirit somewhat of a, of a pun here I think because the word's the same but both wind and, and spirit are mysterious in their origin and movement invisible to see but their effects are clearly observed and just as the wind blows where it wishes so the spirit's work is out with human control as well and imagine uh, Jesus and Nicodemus having this conversation they're there in 
this building, whatever. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, listen to that wind outside. Hear that wind. See how you see the effects of it, but not seeing it. See how you don't influence it or control it. That's what the Holy Spirit is like in the new birth. And to be honest, when I was uh, writing the sermon, I was really convicted of this. Sometimes when um, I'm sharing the gospel with my friends, I think, all right, God, I've done my bit. I've shared the gospel with them. I've gone to stop doing some of the things. They're pretty, they're pretty moral now. They're pretty upright. I've done legwork. I've done the 90% here. You just do the last 10%. You bring the Holy Spirit into lives and make them a Christian. I've done legwork here. Or I might look at someone and say, God, this person is a really good guy. They are a great candidate to be a Christian. Why don't you just go over here and save them? Do you see how foolish that is when we look at this passage? The new birth is nothing down to us. It is entirely by the Holy Spirit and he will save who he will save. And just think about this new life uh, on offer today or think about this new life you have as a Christian. I mean, what would it mean for you if you really could start again? Not turn over a new leaf, not reinvent yourself, not have a new wardrobe and be a bit edgy. But I mean literally start all over again. See, this is what's on offer from Jesus. A new life, entirely new life, where he is your king and not yourself or whatever else you worship. Where he will give you all that is his and take all that is yours and he will give you everything that is his, including himself. And he will change even your very desires here on earth. And you'll be welcomed into his family for all eternity. If you are a Christian, you are entirely new. If you're not a Christian, this is what is in office to you today. And and this all comes by the Holy Spirit. So don't think, actually, no. I'm going to stick my neck out and say, there is not a greater spiritual act than the coming of the Holy Spirit into a person's life, taking up residence and bringing new life into what was dead and keeping that person safe until they see Christ face to face. See, I work with, uh, with students during the weekend. They often like to discuss secondary issues, things which don't really affect our salvation. One of those things is spiritual gifts. I'm just like, guys, look at this spiritual gift. Surely this is the greatest spiritual gift we have on offer, the one of new life, of new birth, of being a new creation by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful gift that is and offer to us and to everyone we know. For new birth is only possible by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it's only possible through the Son. Look down at verse 9, where I see Nicodemus asking, how is the new birth only possible by the Holy Spirit? And Jesus responds by saying, it's only possible through the Son. What we have in these verses here is, is his own testimony. But what is spectacular is, is knowledge of the invisible God. Here he is testifying to what was written about him in chapter 1, verse 18. That no one has seen God, but God the one and only who's at the Father's side has made him known. See, Jesus isn't just a clever guy who knows about God. He doesn't just know about God the Father, about God the Holy Spirit. But he knows him intimately. He's been with them for all eternity in fellowship with the Holy Trinity. And think about what this means his testimony is then. That, that they're unique. They are a unique revelation from the heart of heaven. That Jesus is in fact the real teacher of Israel in this situation. 
And you say, Nicodemus, yet I have all this. I have testimony from the very heart of heaven, yet you choose not to listen. Your people choose not to listen. And I wonder say, if you're listening to, to Jesus' testimony today. I mean, look at uh, verse 14 here to when he's explained to Nicodemus what he means. And to look at the language he uses to explain to Nicodemus what is the gospel really. He's using Old Testament language, language Nicodemus knows, language Nicodemus understands. I'm sure it's a lesson we can learn when we're sharing a gospel with people. And here he talks about uh, the Son of Man from Daniel 7 and then the bronze snake from Numbers 21. See, there in Numbers, God's people uh, had rebelled against him. Despite God's caring for all of their needs, he loved them intimately like a firstborn son. Yet despite God's goodness towards them, despite God rescuing them from slavery, despite God making them his own son, these people rebel against him. And because he is just, because God is just, he brings about judgment and brings a plague of poisonous snakes into the camp. And God could have left it at that. He would have been right to leave it at that. Yet he didn't. He provided a way for all who trust in him to be saved from the judgment that they deserve. They were to look at a bronze snake that Moses was going to lift up. They were to trust God's word and look at this bronze snake and in doing so, trusting on God's word, they would be saved. Isn't that loving and undeserved really of us, what God does here in Numbers? What Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is that I'm going to do the same thing to you. This is going to be something far better, something far more lasting. As the people were crippled by poison from the snake, if they were to look up at the snake, lift it up, and trust God's word, they they would be saved. And here Jesus calls Nicodemus, and also us today, that we, crippled by our sin, look to the one who bore our sin, the word of God, lifted up. If we trust God's word and look to him, we will likewise be saved. And what we see in John's gospel is the beautiful outworkings of this with Nicodemus. See, after this conversation, when you go through John's gospel, we don't see much of Nicodemus. You read through and you wonder, where's he gone? Where is Nicodemus in this book? He crops up once when he sort of sticks his, his neck out on the line, but he, but he hides back again. Until we get to chapter 19. And there at the crucifixion of Jesus, lifted up on, on the cross, that Nicodemus steps out into the light. He sees the miracles of Jesus, he hears the words of Jesus, but it isn't until he sees the cross, that he gets the cross, that here he believes and steps out. I'm not sure about you, but people I talk to, perhaps this might describe you in the room actually, you might say, if only I saw these miracles, I would believe. If only I met the person of Jesus, if only he was standing here with me, I would believe. Well, we've got Nicodemus here who, who, who saw the miracles, who met Jesus in, in a Q&A session, and he didn't believe until it was the cross. And here we have this language of lifted up here, physically lifted up, but also being glorified. It's there on the cross where Christ is most glorified. It's there on the cross where we see Christ revealing to us most perfectly the God the Father in heaven. It's there on the cross where we look to that and we become saved. We are saved is looking at where we see him in his majestic glory and hear him cry out with regal declaration that his work in saving us is finished. Isn't that great news to tell people? Give up on what you are doing. Stop trying to improve yourself. 
You can't save yourself. You'll never save yourself. It's only by Christ that you can be saved from death to life and life with him eternal. See, we, we are all born of the flesh. That's the diagnosis we have here in verse 6. And it isn't a nice one. It means we're twisted in ourselves. It means all areas of our life, even the good ones, are fractured. It means we've rejected the very person who created us. It means we are spiritually dead, having no desire to follow the loving God who made us. And so we all deserve death and hell. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need external help. We need a new life. We need a new birth. This comes not by a lifestyle change, not by religious deeds. Nicodemus is trying that, not by good morals, but by trusting God's solution, by believing in the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, looking to him and him alone and finding life in him. Now, isn't that truly wonderful that the God we've gone against has provided for us a way to be back with him and to receive eternal life when we deserve the very opposite? Because he does it all, that he saves us, all glory must go to him. And what a wonderful offer we have here in verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Everyone who believes. That means all of us in this room that means all people in the city, that means all people on the earth, that this offers them to everyone. And if they believe, they will be saved. What a truly remarkable invitation we have here in front of us. But notice as well that as you've gone through this, it's not enough to say we have a faith in God. That's not a specifically Christian thing to say. A Muslim can say they have a faith in God. Notice here in John's Gospel, we have a faith in the crucified Son of Man, a faith in Jesus we see that again in verses 16 and verses 18. Three times John mentions this because he really wants us to see it. He doesn't want us to miss this open invitation we have here in Jesus. And what a wonderful invitation we have for us here. The new birth is only possible by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, and because of the love of the Father. As we come on to our last point here and look at the general big picture of it, let me read for us. These wonderful verses again. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The men live darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now did you see the four at the beginning there of verse 16? Here is the cause of everything that we've seen so far. So far. Why everyone who believes in Jesus, no one else can have eternal life. For God so loved the world. And here's the root of everything we've seen so far. The love of the Father. Is that not staggering? That new birth is only possible by the love of the Father. The very person we rebelled against. God is not a headmaster spying on you. He's not like a speed camera trying, trying to trap you as you go past him. Brother, he's loving. He's a father who loves us. 
Look at the cost of this, though. For God so loved the world, the world and all its fallenness and, and rebellion, for God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son. Now, I'm, I'm no father. I hope by God's grace that one day I am, but I, I cannot imagine the pain this was of giving up a son, let alone an only son. But bear in mind that this is the, the relationship of the eternal Father God and eternal God the Son. Now here, the closest father-son relationship we could ever have is in real life just a mere dwindling candle compared to the sheer supernova of love between the eternal son and and father. That is, this father-son relationship where the father gives away the son. Notice here that that love is a verb. It's It's not an emotion. It's not mere sentimentalism. It's a verb. He's He's giving his son away. And look at what this love bought. That whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever. Remember at the start we saw how undeserved we all are. How the fact you'd be born again levels the playing field for all of us. Yet here we have this offer of whoever believes because of the outrageous love of the Father, all of us may have eternal life if we believe in Jesus. This invitation is open to all people, all of us here, all in the city, all abroad. So if you are here and, and you aren't a Christian, then come to him. Come to him today. Why not sign up for the Christianity Explored course, nudge the person next to you and ask them to come along with you. And if you do know Jesus... Delight in this invitation. Delight that you've become an object of the Father's love. That you once wicked sinner are now a child of the Father God. That you have been born again by the Spirit. That you've been born again through the Son. That you've been born again because of the love of the Father. Look at verse 17 here as well. Christ came to save the world. We love saviors in our culture. Every time a new superhero film comes out, it seems to break uh, the box office records. We listen to, to our politicians and all about saving the country and saving the economy. We love sports stars who step out in the last minute and score that goal, get that try in the last moments of the match. Where, yeah, they're a saviour of our team. But these are just mere shadows compared to the great saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just think as well what it means that Christ came to save the world. To the very thing that the world did not deserve. Yet he did it out of his love towards us by giving us his life. Do not think of the world as, as merely the people out there. But this includes us as well. But notice in verse 18 as well, we've got a positive and negative qualification of what's going on positive whoever believes in him is not condemned what great news we need to preach this to ourselves every day that i a sinner saved by god's grace towards us i'm not condemned for christ has died for me look at the other side of the same coin in verse 18 whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of god's one and only son and if you're here and you aren't a christian and this is your diagnosis. 
you are already condemned. Harrowing words we have here. Condemned because you are refusing God's goodness towards you. Every day of your life is another opportunity to turn to him. Every breath, another chance to ask him for forgiveness. And the options here are clear. There's only two options. You can't be apathetic. If you're not for, then you are by nature against. You've seen the wonderful goodness of God. Will we accept it in Jesus or reject it and carry on in our condemnation? Look how verse 19 describes what we are all like by nature. We are people who love darkness. Like the bugs when you go for a walk on, on a beach or on, a, on some mud and you lift up a rock or a stone and the light comes on to and you all scurry away back into the darkness. We want to hide in the darkness. The light is uncomfortable. And we see this not just in our own lives but in society as a whole. As you see Christianity, you see Jesus being forced more and more out of society, out of our schools, out of institutions like marriage because he loved the darkness. For all of us, we need to ask ourselves, whether Christian or non-Christian, what places in our lives would you not want Jesus to come with you? What words do you not want him to hear you saying? What thoughts do you not want him to know? Will you repent of them? Will you rejoice in Christ's sacrifice that you aren't condemned? Will you carry on in them? Look how John talks about this in 20 and 21. It's those who hate the light, those who hate the good news about Jesus, because they know the life is shameful and it'll be exposed. And it's those who acknowledge that God sees all. Instead of hiding from him, they turn to him, accept his offer of forgiveness and new life because of God's merciful intervention in their life. Now as their lives change, become more like Christ, people plainly see that God has done something miraculous in them. So as we've looked at this today in John 3, how, how, what's your response to perfect goodness? How do you respond, how do you respond to perfect goodness when it, when it reveals your heart's desires? What wonderful news this is though, that even as we end here, quite a low point, we need not forget the start of the sermon, the start of the text, when we see the wonderful invitation we have in Christ. We see the wonderful news that we are saved by the Holy Spirit, that we are saved through the Son, and we are saved because of the love of the Father. What a gracious God we have. Let's pray. Our loving God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new birth that you have given us. We thank you that we can come before you and call you Father. We thank you for the new life that we have. There is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Thank you that in Christ we are not condemned. Show us in lives where we do not live worthy of the name Christian. Help us to, to repent of them, to rejoice that, that Christ has paid the price for our sin. Thank you for the new birth. 
Father, we, we think of our friends as well, our neighbors, our family, who do not know you. Keep us faithful to sharing the gospel with them. Help us to not, to not water it down, to not bottle it. Thank you for this glorious invitation we have to offer them. That the gracious God, the one who we have sinned against, offers with outstretched arms to us today to come to him, to find life in him. We thank you that, in, that Christ really is the person of grace and truth. That here as we read this passage today, see these two things here that Christ does not hide away from our our status outside of him and inside of him yet he is so gracious with this invitation to us keep us faithful as a church to sharing the gospel with this city with the world may you be glorified in all of this we see that salvation is nothing down to us but entirely down to you we thank you for that all praise and glory be to you, never to ourselves. We all we pray all these things, Father, before you, in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Dot .org Thanks for listening.